It is wonderful to be back in God's house here at Kirkpatrick and uh, deeply appreciative of the music ministry that you have in this congregation. It astounds me that you have not one praise team, but four, I believe, and you guys keep switching off. It's incredible. Uh, It is so great. We've had such a a wonderful time, and and before I get to God's word, I just want to say thanks for the hospitality that has been shown to our family here uh, during our stay in the manse. Uh, in Belfast and Ballyhackamore, and uh, from apple pies being dropped off to uh, lunch invitations, and uh, even for Ricky showing me how uh, to improve my golf game. It's been, a, it's been a wonderful time, and we know that Christoph and Claire and the kids have had an equally good time. If you're following Claire's Facebook account, it seems they've been all over Western Canada and down in the States, and and having a wonderful time. We're mindful that eight hours from now, Christoph will be standing as I am here, but at our church in Vancouver preaching. And so we'll keep him in prayer as he uh, uh, brings a message uh, to the congregation in Vancouver. One of the activities we are engaged in as a family was uh, an epic uh, hike up uh, Slemish Mountain, uh, kind of a pilgrimage, if you will. And uh, as I was going up the, uh, the mountain, we uh, lost uh, two of the five family members partway up. Laura and the baby turned around. Apparently, that's not a hike for infants. Uh, and uh, as I was pushing the children up Slemish uh, recently, the rocks were tumbling, it was raining, it was a bad scene. And, uh, and I thought I should really be saying the, the Psalms of Ascent at this point. But I was saying some other more colorful language. And so as I came to uh, the psalm reading today, I was humbled thinking of those pilgrims of old. So let's dig into God's word and especially exploring this notion of pilgrimage and of psalms of ascent. Let us pray. Father, it's a privilege to be in your house no matter how we have crossed the threshold today. For some here, we are at the height of gladness. We come to sing songs in the key of life, full of joy. For others, we barely drag ourselves into your house today, singing a more melancholy tune. However this day finds us, we bless you, that you have called us here, that your Holy Spirit meets us here, and that we are equipped and sent out to be the people of God in this community to enhance your reputation, and to proclaim the good news, Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. In his name we pray. Amen. Now, looking at me, I appear to be far too old to have a rock collection. I'm sure you'll agree that's something that little boys have. You know, they pick it up in the garden or on the beach, and they as easily discard a stone or a rock Uh, as they find one. So I confess it's a bit immature on my part to have a rock collection. Uh, This very day when Christoph is preparing uh, to lead worship and meeting with our worship team and praying in my office, he no doubt will, will see the rock collection on my desk. I didn't warn him about that, but there's a few other things I didn't warn him about, like my uh, Moses action figure doll, that when you press the back, it's the voice of Charlton Heston reading the Ten Commandments, those kinds of things. So there's a few surprises for Christoph in the office. But the rock collection that sits on my desk is a little bit silly, but I only began the collection years ago when I made my first pilgrimage to Israel. 
And I, I didn't want to get the, the tacky tourist stuff in, in the various tourist shops. And so I started a little practice. Whenever we'd visit a site of particular biblical importance, I would look for a, a small stone. And with the Sharpie pen that I had in my backpack, I would scribble a, a scripture verse. Sometimes to keep for myself sometimes to give away to one of the elders on Kirk Session or even one of the children in the Sunday school when I returned home. So if you were to transport yourself today and to sit with Christoph in my office in Vancouver, you would see a stone that would have something like a Matthew 4.19 on it, picked up from the, uh, the shores of the Galilee, Jesus calling his first disciples You'd see a stone that would say Deuteronomy 32 on it from the top of Mount Nebo in Jordan looking into the promised land that he would never cross into. You'd see a small stone, a rather smooth stone, that says 1 Samuel 17, taken from the Valley of Elah where David fought the giant Goliath, where he picked five smooth stones Just one for Goliath, and if you know the the legend, it's rumored that Goliath actually had four other brothers. So when David went to fight the giant, he took a stone for each of them in case he encountered not one, but many giants. There you will also see a a stone that simply says Psalm 1-2-2, today's psalm. And that one was picked up in Jerusalem on the walk from the city of David up towards what is left of the temple. And they've done a beautiful job of excavating the steps that pilgrims would take making their way up to the temple for the three high holidays of Passover, the Festival of Weeks, and the Festival of Booths. And the steps are not even on purpose. They are kind of staggered steps, The purpose being that you couldn't run up them. You had to take them very slowly, lest your foot would slip and you would stumble. And it also required you to be in a very humble position as you approached the temple of God. As you got closer as a pilgrim, you would see giant entranceways and separate exitways. To the side was the the ritual bath and the opportunity to change your currency into temple currency. Everyone, of course, would make their way into the entrance unless you were bereaved, unless you were grieving. And then there was a special exemption as a pilgrim as you were making your way up, singing these psalms of ascent into the temple. If you were bereaved, if you had recently suffered a death in your family, you were exempt, you were allowed to go in the exit door to the temple. Very curious reason for that, as everyone was coming out of the temple and bumping into these folks coming the wrong way, they knew the reason why they were coming the wrong way, and they would express their condolences. It was like a group pastoral care exercise. And then into the temple of God, after so many years of carrying the the Ark of the Covenant willy-nilly here and there, following this God who was always on the move, a pillar of cloud by day, a, a pillar of fire by night, finally God could be worshipped in one place. They'd be singing the whole way up. 
It's a powerful thing to be in that place and to hear the psalms being sung. On the first visit that I was there, I was with a group of evangelical pastors from North America and decided to to try and sing the psalms in that place, the, the psalms of ascent, as we made our way up the steps. The Psalms of Ascent are a fascinating thing because it invites us to reflect on the theme of pilgrimage. Now, pilgrimage is not something that we're always entirely comfortable with in our Reformed tradition. Sometimes people get a little suspicious of pilgrimage. That's too superstitious. You're going to see old relics and venerate these relics while you go into the tacky tourist shop next door and buy a postcard or something like that. But pilgrimage is a deep part of our tradition. There's a a fine scholar who used to be at Cambridge University, and then she took an appointment more recently as the the worship professor at Yale Divinity School in Connecticut. Her name is Maggie Dawn. She has a, a beautiful book that she put out a couple of years ago called The Accidental Pilgrim. And it's a very simple, short book in three parts. And the first one, first part of the book talks about her reluctance to engage in, in pilgrimage for some of those reasons that I mentioned. But she did go to Israel and she reflects on how her aha moments with God, those revelatory moments, actually took place in very unexpected places. Second part of her book is after she became a mom which many of you can relate to here and how everything changed. And despite her best efforts, she booked a a pilgrimage to see the Black Madonna and everything went wrong. Everyone went streaming ahead and she was left with a buggy trying to work it up the path. And just, it was more of a reflection on how parenthood has changed her and her walk of faith with God. But the best part of the book is the third part, where she's ready to go on another pilgrimage. And just before she breaks her leg, And she has this enormous cast on her leg. And she's confined to an armchair for a month. And she thinks she's going to go absolutely out of her mind, sitting in one place for a month. And she has a stack of books beside her. And she reads and she prays and she reflects. And she decides that the hardest pilgrimage is not one of going to a geographic distance. The hardest pilgrimage is going inside A pilgrimage of the heart. I've had pilgrimage on my mind. One of the blessings of doing a pulpit exchange, as Christoph and I have done between Belfast and Vancouver, is you get overnight to explore a whole new library in a minister's collection. With all the baby gear we had to bring with us, there was no room left in my bag for some good theological books But I took a a leap of faith and I was right that Christoph would have a magnificent library in the manse. So I've just been reading through his collection. I hope he's okay with that. And one of the books that I decided to reread, it had been so long on your minister's shelf in the manse, is Pilgrim's Progress. You probably had to to read it if you did English uh, uh, at Queen's or something like that. It's It's a classic tale by... John Bunyan, of first uh, a gentleman named Christian and then his wife, Christina, who go from the city of destruction to Mount Zion. And this has deeply influenced in the Protestant tradition our understanding of pilgrimage, not so much as a physical journey, 
but as a spiritual journey, what we simply call sanctification, right? Growing in the faith, being blessed and encouraged on our way of faith. And as I've been reading through Pilgrim's Progress, I've had Psalm 122 open beside me on the bedside table, knowing that Psalm 122 is a psalm for pilgrims. So I began to think, what if we are all pilgrims on a journey? What might Psalm 122 have to say to us? And I just absolutely love the way that Psalm 122 opens. It opens with an invitation. Did you catch that? I love the way it begins when the psalmist says that others called to him and said, let us go to the house of the Lord. It begins with invitation, which is very appropriate theologically that our lives as Christians begins with God's sovereign call. We were even singing about it today in the songs of praise before, that God calls us first doesn't matter how clever you are or whether you've taken time to try and figure everything out. The Christian life begins with God's first move. I've often wondered whether we downplay how important invitation is in the life and the work of the church. Remember years ago when we were in a a little tiny townhouse in Ontario ministering at a, a local church and it was one of those townhomes where you'd share a balcony with your neighbor. My neighbor, Dan, his parents were actually originally from Ballymena. And Dan was going through a very messy, very messy divorce. And as it was, sharing a balcony, we'd often go out at night and have a cup of tea and, and chat about how things were. About three weeks later, on a, on a Sunday, I saw him going out in the morning, and I knew he was a, a bike rider, so I said, well, are you going out for a ride? He said, no, actually, I, I'm going to church. I, oh, that, that's amazing. I said, which church are you going to? I said, well, a friend of mine that I work with heard what I was going through and invited me out to church. And then I thought, I'm a minister. I've been sitting with this guy, hearing his problems, sipping tea, and I never once said to him, you should come to church. How condemning is that? The practice of invitation is critical. When I see newcomers come into the church in Vancouver, first of all, I'm delighted that they're there. But secondly, in the back of my mind, I wonder, how did they hear the call? How did they hear the invitation to come to church For some, it's because there's something very happy that's happened in their lives. They're looking to get married now that they're engaged. Maybe they've had a baby and they're thinking about baptism. But for many, the call to be involved in the Christian community, to take that first step of pilgrimage, is often due to a death in the family or a health or a financial crisis. And so it is always a puzzle for me to try and figure out why, why are people here? What is the individual narrative? What is the, the pilgrimage story that each of you have to tell if we could go around and hear one another's stories of faith? As I, I read further on in Psalm 122, I, I thought there was almost a, a missing piece. It's, it's almost inferred. If, if you go on a pilgrimage, if you accept that invitation as the psalmist did to to go to the house of the Lord. 
If you go on any journey, a day trip or a longer trip, what do you need to do? You need to, to pack, don't you? Whether it's simply putting your wallet in your pocket or putting your purse over your shoulder or a backpack or a full set of suitcases, you need to pack for a journey, for a pilgrimage. And I began to think, right that first step, even just making the commitment to begin a pilgrimage, is where a lot of people can go no further. And this is certainly the case in the book uh, Pilgrim's Progress, where a lot of people simply cannot bear the thought of leaving home. One of the things that I, I say in Vancouver is that the hardest thing about preaching heaven in Vancouver is people think they're already there. It's one of those things that, that people can't imagine a more beautiful place. And so encouraging them to go deeper in their faith, to imagine heaven as a place even more beautiful, is challenging for them. I was talking with one of the elders of the church, and she was describing a visit to the nursing home she did recently. She had a, an elderly aunt who had once had an enormous home, almost like a mansion, and had done many, many uh, fancy dinner parties and was quite fond of her china sets and all that kind of stuff. But as she got older, without children, she had to downsize from that home into a nursing home. And making the decision on what to take and what to leave was one of the most painful decisions of her life. And when the elder from her church went to visit this aunt, the administrator met the elder right at the door and said, Oh, I'm very sorry. I've been trying to get a hold of you, but your aunt died this morning. And then with a total lack of pastoral sensitivity, in one hand she had four orange garbage bags. And, and she said, uh, I kind of need the room cleared out. Would you mind saying goodbye to your aunt and then take all her possessions with you? Well, for the elder, the church, you know, her head was just spinning. This was too much for, for her to handle. She went in and said goodbye to her aunt. But she said the defining memory of that experience was walking out of the nursing home with her aunt's possessions, once this beautiful mansion full of expensive items, reduced down to four orange garbage bags. I don't know about here in Ballyhackamore, but certainly where I minister, people's love of their possessions holds them back from pilgrimage. You know, in North America, we've stopped building cathedrals. Now when you fly over our cities, of course, you see shopping malls instead. I call those our new cathedrals. People's love of stuff holds them back from the pilgrimage life. You know, Jesus was clear in Luke 10 that you should take very little with you and he sends out the, the 72. We need to be aware of what it is that is valuable for us. It's not that, that we don't need to take anything. A friend and colleague in America uh, who is just an amazing preacher, Lillian Daniel, uh, tells a story of when her own mother was downsizing her home and she went back to, to give her a hand, just to give her a little bit of help. And uh, her, her mom's house had this huge collection of vases on the walls and on the mantelpiece and that kind of thing. And Lillian was going along and stuffing things either into boxes to move to her apartment, her mom's new apartment, or just garbage bags to get rid of. And she came across this one vase. And, and the vase was ugly. It was the ugliest vase in the house. And it had been broken at some point. In fact... The glue job, the repair job, was terrible. It was all like old, bubbled, yellow glue. It kind of come out and hardened over the years. 
And so Lillian just picked up the vase instinctively and, and was about to throw it in the garbage bag when her mother came in the room and her mother screamed. And she said, no, not that vase. She said, you can get rid of all the others, but not that vase. And, and, and Lillian said, well, well, why? What's so special about this one? And, and her mother said, you, you don't remember, do you? She said, your father, you know that he was a reporter and then he covered the Vietnam War. And that was a long flight in those days to get back to America. You'd have to take four or five different connections. And every time he came home from the Far East, he would bring me a new beautiful piece of china or vase or something like that. And he had been gone for a couple of months once and you were about five years old and you missed him so much. And you stood for hours at the screen porch door waiting for his yellow taxi cab to pull up. And when it finally did, it was past your bedtime, and you pushed open the door, and you ran towards the cab, and your father got out of the cab, and you jumped into his arms, and he stepped out of the cab with that very vase, and he instinctively dropped it, and it smashed all over the sidewalk, and he caught you in that jump, and he held on to you, Forever. Lillian's mother said, I stayed up all night gluing that vase back together. And now it's the only thing I want of your father's. Friends, there are some things we take on pilgrimage that are soul treasures. But there's a lot that we can let go of. When we read further in Psalm 122, when we have accepted the invitation, when we have decided what to bring on our pilgrimage of the Spirit, then we read that there are certain elements involved in pilgrimage. There's praise, there's prayer, but there's a part that we read over rather quickly. There's judgment. We're into the the throne of judgment. And one of the things rereading Pilgrim's Progress this week that really came home to me was how many people started the journey and never finished the journey. People who were sidetracked, were waylaid with various temptations on the way, who were judged unsuitable by the grace of God. And I know where I minister and experience life in Christ and in North America, I, I worry quite a bit that we've taken the sting out of the pilgrimage. We've made it too easy. Part of what I do in Vancouver is I, I lecture at our seminary uh, in preaching. And just recently before I left, I was finishing a course and the topic for the day was preaching at funerals. And I was telling the members of the class who are preparing for ordination to to always be careful before preaching a funeral sermon in our culture. Because I said that we suffer from what I call Hallmark card theology, which is basically the most natural thing is to close your eyes and to wake up in heaven. When actually the most natural thing is to close your eyes and that's it. And I was saying that is a, a theology of resuscitation where the gospel is a theology of resurrection. If there is anything beyond this life, it is by the pure grace of God alone. It's that kind of fuzziness. It's taking the sting out that happens too often. There's an amazing scholar at Princeton uh, these days, Princeton Theological Seminary named Kendra Dean. 
And in her study of American Presbyterianism, she has described the uh, overall approach of ministry these days as benign whateverism. Benign whateverism. There is just kind of this milk toast version of faith that's being spoken from the pulpit and in the Sunday schools and Sunday clubs. She says the operating theology in most Presbyterian churches in North America today is moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic, be a good person. Therapeutic, how do you feel? Does it feel good? Well, then do it. And deism, don't worry about God. God's somewhere in the distance. God doesn't really get too involved in our lives. That this false gospel tends to trick people into not believing that there is real struggle in the pilgrimage. As I say in Canada, too often that we think the gospel is all about taking nice Canadians and just making them nicer. Jesus didn't go to the cross for that. There is real struggle if you are to accept the life of the pilgrim. But there is reward as well. As we work our way towards the end of Psalm 122, we see that that glimpse of what the psalmist, as he's climbing those steps towards the temple, is hoping for, that there would be peace in Jerusalem, but that there would also be peace upon brothers and and sisters and friends, relatives and friends, as one translation puts it, and that there would be peace upon God's house. Now, that's all lovely, I have to say. But as I read it this week, I I struggled with the way the psalm ends that we have before us today. You see, it seems a little too narrow in its vision. Maybe it's just me. But I thought the Bible says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. I'm pretty sure that, that Jesus didn't just hang out with relatives and friends. In fact, Jesus tried to get out of family reunions as much as possible, the gospel tells us. Jesus was about eating with sinners and with enemies. Jesus kept breaking open who we should be asking for peace upon. The church is always so in danger of becoming safe, of becoming just another club. We say in North America that the church is always in danger of just one generation of dying out. That the emphasis upon passing the gospel to the next generation is so strong. Because it only takes one skip generation and you can see a church disappear. But I think the danger is actually greater that it simply becomes a benign club of some kind. When I was doing my doctoral work in Chicago, I heard a story long before the U.S. Coast Guard was formed to patrol the waters of Lake Michigan. There was a group of fishermen and so forth who uh, made a pact that if one of them was in trouble on the water, they would all go out and help that person. Makes sense, doesn't it? And so they formed an association. It was like a a life-saving association. And indeed, as people got into trouble on on the lake, they would go out and rescue them. But over time, there was kind of a structure put in place. There was a council that was formed. People were elected. They decided they needed a building to store some of their boats, so they started building their, their buildings. And then it was suggested that it would be nice to, to create like a, a reception area and a dance hall so they could do some fundraising, and so they did that as well. And, and then they, they had a controversial decision that they would admit members into the Life Saving Society 
that didn't even know how to, to take a boat out onto the lake or swim. And, and so they kind of expanded the membership and it got bigger and bigger and, and they became known more for their dances on a Saturday night than for their life-saving that they did. And then eventually they just stopped going out on the lake. The danger is always before us if we say that we only pray for our family and for our friends and for God's house, but not for what God might be doing in the world around us. Last church I served in Ontario was in a pretty poor neighborhood, and we had a lot of our members who would drive in from other places to attend church and then drive out again. There was a a gentleman who uh, was uh, retired as a retail manager. His name was Brock, and he came into my office one day for a chat, and and he challenged me a bit. He said, I don't think this church is doing enough for, for social outreach. Uh, And then unlike what happens so often in the church when people complain and just go away, he said, I'd like to do something about that. Now that's gold to a minister's ears. So he formed an outreach ministry in the church and he started a food bank out of our church. And one day he came in and uh, he said, I'd like to do a a missions trip down to Honduras. I said, that's great. So we got that team together. They did a, a medical mission down to Honduras every year. And then he said, have you ever been to that halfway house? You know where all the men who are released from prison go for a while? It's just two blocks from our church. And that's where I kind of sheepishly said, well, I've been quite busy. You know, I've been visiting people in the church and chairing presbytery. And, you know, I just haven't actually gone to where Jesus might be hanging out. And so Brock said, well, I'll go today. And he got to know the guys who had been released from prison. And and Brock, just like the beginning of Psalm 122, he was big into invitation. I called him my mini-evangelist. He'd always say, what do you guys need? It's cold in that part of Canada in the winter, so they needed coats, toques, mitts, that kind of thing. And our church provided that. But he'd always say to the guys, you know, we worship God down the street uh, Sunday mornings. I'd love to have you there. And then one day... In the back of the church, the door is open, and a guy comes in named Doug, who is the scruffiest looking guy you're ever going to see. Big, bushy beard. I think there may have been squirrels living in that beard. He was stinking to high heaven, and he comes down, and instinctively as the minister at the front, I start scanning for who? For Brock, thinking, I hope he's here so he can like sit with this guy and make him feel welcome. I remember thinking, this is a test, God. This is a test of this congregation. How will we respond? And I saw him kind of come down towards the front, and I was just about to get out of my chair at the front and go down and greet him, when one of the saints of the church, an older woman sitting near the front with gloves on, I kid you not, no one wears gloves in Canada anymore to church, motioned him over and sat down, and she put her arm around him and showed him where we were in the service and made him feel most welcome. Then she led him with those silly white gloves by the hand to coffee hour afterwards. And Doug started attending church every week. And the thing is, it wasn't that he joined our pilgrimage as much as we joined his. And we saw a transformation, what God was doing in this man's life. And one day, Doug came into my office and said, I'd like to be baptized. So the next Sunday, we had a baptism service for him at the front. There wasn't a a dry eye in the church. Then another week, he came in and he said, uh, Pastor, he said, you know the men's breakfast coming up? I'd like to cook for the men, if that's okay. I thought, oh, well, this will be interesting. 
He said, this church family means everything to me, and I, I want to give something back. And so I agreed, and I showed up on the Saturday morning to the smell of bacon and eggs coming out of the church kitchen. And all the guys were gathering, guys of very different spectrums, high-end business guys all the, the way down. And, and so it was quite a mix of folks who were gathered. And there was Doug laughing and chatting and singing away in the kitchen. And I looked at the ingredients that he was using, and it was from what we would call the dollar store, the pound stretcher. It was like the lowest grade meat and everything else you could imagine. That There was like no meat, only fat on the bacon, that kind of thing. And I kind of cringed a little bit. And so we had our, our grace, and all the guys sat down at table, and there was Doug with his apron on, and uh, he had come so far in his pilgrimage, and he had taken us so far in our pilgrimage and we sat down, and he put the, uh, the bacon and the eggs and the pancakes in front of me and the low-grade orange juice. And I took a bite, and I thought, this is terrible. This is the worst meal I've ever had. And, and then I thought about that theme of pilgrimage, and, and I looked around, and I saw guys laughing, and I saw Doug just beaming in what he had provided. And, and I thought about... Where are we going on pilgrimage? Where does this Psalm 122 ultimately end? But in God's presence. And, and I looked around again and I saw all these men at table breaking bread in God's presence. And Doug beaming from the kitchen, so glad to do what he did. And so I decided to, to take another bite. And, and I cut into the egg and it was delicious. I cut into the pancake, and it was actually pretty good. I took a sip of that low-grade orange juice, and I think it was the best orange juice of my life. And I couldn't figure out what the taste was. All these men sitting around table, breaking bread together. I kept eating and eating, and I saw Doug smiling. And I thought, what is this taste? I have tasted this before. And then it hit me. I knew what I was eating. It tasted like bread and wine. 